Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the truth, to be reminded of the fact that uh, Jesus is the embodiment of the truth, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that it is your word, as he prayed, that is the truth. And, Father, we thank you that we know that there is absolute truth. And the way that we come to understand that is by having the spirit of our mind, our thinking renewed as we have studied in this passage. And that we are no longer to think as we thought when we were part of the old man. But now that we are in Christ and new position in Christ in the new man, we are thankful that we have a new identity and a new code of conduct. And as we continue our study, we are learning some things about how the biblical code of conduct, the New Testament code of conduct for the church-age believer is unique and distinct, and it is different from, in many cases, from the code of conduct that is just simple human morality. There are distinctives here that we need to understand and emulate as believers, so, Father, open our, the eyes of our understanding to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, today we are going to look at what the Bible teaches about this ministry uh, to one another. Because as we concluded our study of Ephesians uh, 4.25 last time, it reminds us that we are members of one another. And the challenge to us is distinctive, I think, because we are Americans and there are certain aspects of the worldview of of Americans that are a little bit contrary to what this teaches. In American history, we developed an, an idea and a character known as rugged individualism. And we're all going to make it on our own without dependence upon others. Now, that value is being lost in the current generation, and they don't want it because they don't want to take responsibility. The, the, um, this principle has good values, good parts to it, and also parts that are somewhat negative. The good part is that it is uh, an a- application of the first divine institution, that is personal responsibility. We take our responsibility for our own lives, and this is the historic view of, uh, of the American view of rugged individualism. We are going to make it 
on our own. We're not going to depend upon others uh, to take care of us. We are not going to become dependent upon the government. We're not going to be dependent upon uh, even members of family. We are going to make it on our own. And that is a tremendous value. But the negative is, is that it can create a culture that is atomistic. Now, what do I mean by atomistic? That's based on the word A-T-O-M, atom, not the word A-D-A-M, atom, okay? So uh, what do we mean by an atomistic culture? Well, atomism comes out of certain views of, uh, certain views of philosophy that everybody is just totally distinct and separate and runs on their own course. So there's no interaction between people, and so you just get people who are uh, on their own, and they're going to do it all on, on their own. But when we get into passages like the ones we're studying this morning, we see that there's an emphasis in Scripture that runs counter to that, and that is that we are members of one another. This is distinctive. This goes to the idea that the body of Christ is not an organization. The body of Christ is a is an organism. Some writers use the word mystical, and they what they mean by mystical is we don't really fully grasp or understand this nature that, because it's this invisible uh, union with Christ that occurs at when each person is uh, believes and they're baptized by the Holy Spirit enter into the body of Christ and Christ as the head of the church and the Holy Spirit who is the one who's energizing the church are building this organism and in Ephesians chapter 2 we saw the emphasis on the fact that that there's now neither Jew nor Greek. Nor, uh, Greek. Before the cross, there was this distinction in the Mosaic law uh, between Jew and Gentile. And now in the body of Christ, there is no distinction. The enmity of the law has been abolished at the cross so that now God has made of us, or Christ has made of us, one new man. And that is... It's so important to understand all of these passages, and that's back in John, I mean in Ephesians chapter chapter two, about verse twenty four, and then we get into Ephesians chapter three, and Paul builds on that that we are no longer part of the old man, that is the mass of humanity apart from Christ, apart from salvation, but we are now in the new man. We have put off the old man at salvation. We put on the new man. And so we are now in the body of Christ, and we are members of one another. And so there is a distinctive pattern there that sort of cuts against the grain of rugged American individualism. Now, that just that's not saying there's not some important values to uh, strong individualism, but the weakness is that it doesn't recognize how we as believers are to uh, relate to one another. And so this is an important function of our spiritual life within the body of Christ. And this gets minimized because 
uh, too often what we find is that people, especially today, they can live in any number of locations and say, I just can't find a church that even comes close to teaching the Bible. And so I would rather sit and uh, listen, live stream, or listen online. I previously was listening to tapes, and I'm I just not involved with any local church. Well, that's a violation of the whole principle of the body of Christ and being members of one another. There are a lot of different things that people can do, even though you may live in an area where uh, let's just say that the best church is rather minimalistic in terms of orthodoxy, biblical orthodoxy. But that gives you an opportunity to minister to others and to perhaps introduce them to a higher standard of uh, focus on the Word of God. I remember some years ago there was a young man that was uh, listening to me when I when I taught on this, and he was in the military at the time, had a family, and they had moved around a lot. So they basically they they were focused on listening to tapes. That was uh, Bryce and I were talking about this yesterday, 25 years ago. This next year, we uh, started uh, putting started what became Dean Bible Ministries, the media uh, aspect of, of my ministry. And uh, we were putting out tapes. We limited people six cassettes a month because I was our, our six. What was it? Six cassettes every every two weeks because I was only teaching three times a week, and we were just getting started. So if somebody wanted to order more, there weren't any more. And uh, we had a lot of people who were regularly ordering. And I remember uh, just kind of a side note: there was one young man who. Uh, uh, ordered six tapes every other Monday. And I didn't recognize his name at all, and I came to find out after about three or four years that because he used his first name, not his middle name, his middle name is Clay, and that was Clay Ward. And uh, Clay had been listening, and a lot of you don't know the story, but back in 95 or so, uh, Clay came to Houston to talk to Pastor Theme about um, uh, about going in the ministry and training and all of that. And Katie Tapping said, no, you don't want to talk to him. You want to talk to Robbie Dean. And so I spent the weekend with Clay. I forgot his name after that until he reminded me about four years later. And so uh, he was regularly listening. But anyway, we were putting out tapes. And so this other individual and his family would just listen to tapes every week. But they had no interaction with other believers except one or two that they knew uh, knew in the service. And he got involved in a local church uh, somewhere in uh, northern Kentucky. And within a few weeks, after having some conversations with the pastor, the pastor said, would you teach Sunday school? And so he started teaching Sunday school, and the pastor was c- coming in and uh, li- listening to what he was teaching, and the pastor became more consistently free grace and dispensational, and it had a tremendous impact on that church for the next couple of years. And so this is how the body of Christ functions. Uh, but if you are isolated and you're going it alone because you don't uh, like what is really taught in most of the churches around you, 
then um, then you're going to miss out on some of these tremendous opportunities of ministry. Now, I'm not saying that you have to compromise doctrine. I had another individual said, well, I've heard you teach about this, but the only, he lived up in Vermont somewhere, he said the only, the best church in my my area is a congregational church, but they don't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Should I take my children to such a church? I said, no. You just do what you can where you are. Maybe you'll talk to other people, and and, uh, you'll find some other believers, and you'll invite them to come uh, over to your house, and you all can, can have a small group and start something like that. And I've had various other groups around the country uh, do that, where they've had as many as maybe 12 or 15 people come together on, um, on, a, on a Sunday where they live stream the Sunday morning, morning service. So there's a lot of options there, but we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that's because there are these one another ministries. So all of that by way of introduction, we're in this second half of Ephesians, talking about how we are to live our lives walking as as we are to walk worthy of our high position or calling, which is our position in Christ. And this paragraph from 425 to 432 deals with not grieving the Holy Spirit. We looked at the verse 25 in depth, and we saw the contrast between the lie The lie is the thinking of the old man. The lie is the human viewpoint thinking or the devil's way of thinking. It is paganism. It is a non-biblical way of thinking that governs uh, all human culture. And there are various uh, manifestations of that. And Paul says, you have already put off the old man. That is, our position in Adam is has been taken off at the instant of salvation, and we have put on the new man, which is our identity in Christ. And so because we have done that, we are to speak truth, the the truth, uh, as it should be understand, because what he's talking about is he's used the word truth several times already in Ephesians 4, and he's talking about what the Word of God teaches what we call uh, Bible doctrine. It is the teaching or the instruction uh, of Scripture. And I drew some contrast between the various uh, manifestations of the lie in our culture today. We looked at modernism as a worldview last time and postmodernism. And then this week a survey was released by Summit Ministries. Some of you are familiar with Summit Ministries. The founder uh, and president for for many years uh, came and was a speaker at the Chafer Conference about fifteen fourteen fifteen years ago, and uh, they are a ministry that's focus is to take uh, uh, teenagers who are coming out of high school or beginning college and to take them through an intensive worldview training course. Uh, this takes place up at their headquarters near Colorado Springs, and to teach them and train them to think in, in terms of a worldview and to be able to withstand the assaults on their thinking that are prevalent in almost every, and by that I mean 99.9% of universities and colleges in this country are being totally controlled by wokest Marxism. 
and you would be astounded and nauseous if you knew what was being taught intentionally in the classrooms. It is pure anti-American, uh, uh, anti-American Marxism, and a lot of that was present when some of us were in college 20, 30, 40 years ago. And we heard this, but today it is much more aggressive and you uh, students are required to take social justice courses. E- everything is taught within the framework of critical race theory. And so it is a extremely dangerous place for a young believer who has no understanding of scripture and no understanding of apologetics. So Summit Ministries had a national survey uh, and in this survey, they asked the question, what is your belief about truth? In other words, is there absolute truth or does each person determine their own version of truth? 57% of the respondents said there was absolute truth. 39% said that, that truth is just each person's own truth. Pure relativism. That's what I talked about last time. This is the impact of a postmodern worldview. And then um, 4% said they don't know. In my opinion, probably half of those in the blue column that said they believe in absolute truth probably don't live or act like it, but they still want to theoretically hold on to the view that there is absolute truth. And um, so that I, I think this is a little optimistic. A second question they asked is, what is your belief about truth? And 60% said uh, there is absolute truth, and uh, 40% said there's uh, they have their own version. And then in this uh, third slide, uh, picture or graph they had on their website, do you believe one person standing up for their beliefs in a time of crisis has the power to really change things. 70% said yes, 16% said no, and 14% don't know. And then the last slide depicts the answers to the question, do you believe, uh, I think that, that this is slightly different. Um, this is uh, has to do with a different question, but the bottom line is they give you the detail. This is on the summit.org uh, website. Maybe it's national-summit.org, and you can um, you can go there to look at the details and read their analysis of these of these graphs. So we're in a situation in this country where probably, in my estimation, half, at least forty percent, are committed and conscious of the fact that they don't believe in any kind of absolute truth. And then part of the other group, it probably lives lives like it. So we have to understand that that background. So that brings us to this last phrase that we talked about some last time, because we are members of one another. Uh, that is related to the fact that we are to teach or speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, the word neighbor means someone who is in proximity, in some passage, that would mean someone that uh, that you live close to. In other passages, it would refer, such as the passage about the good Samaritan, the parable of the good Samaritan, to somebody you just come in contact with. And 
excuse me, in this context, it would refer to other believers because it's further defined in this last uh, causal clause as members of, uh, we are members of one another. This phrase is used many times in Scripture. It's hard for us to conceptualize the fact that we are members of one another. We are distinct individuals on the one hand, but there is this organic unity that is spiritual that was created at the time that we trusted in Christ as Savior, and we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So it's an organic unity that exists for every believer together, whether they are alive now or have gone to be with the Lord. That's the body of Christ is made up of living saints as well as those who are already uh, in the presence of the Lord. So we are members of one another, and as such, there is a responsibility to the members, uh, other members of the body of Christ. So earlier in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, Paul said, but speaking the truth in love. Again, the truth there is the, referring to the teaching of the Word of God, speaking the truth of love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. I want you to notice that in so many of these passages, the part of the framework or assumption uh, that's within the context of these one another passages is the idea of, of spiritual growth, abounding uh, in something that in, indicates that there's a growth, a progress of maturity. We grow in love. We grow in all of the different uh, virtues that are part of the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, the growing up is what we are to do in the body of Christ. And from whom? That is from Christ. The whole body joined and knit together. That's, that's a, uh, that, that comes, that language comes out of human anatomy and it relates to, uh, the joints and the sinews of the muscles, how that is all interconnected and interdependent. Uh, if anybody doubts that, just get some sort of injury to one part of your body and you realize how negatively it impacts many other parts of your body. Uh, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, but why every joint supplies. So in this analogy, every joint is every individual believer who is in the body of Christ. Uh, so we are joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Romans 12, 4 and 5, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we're all different. There's diversity within the body. But, he says, so we being many are one body in Christ. It's, it's like a team. And we function together, we interact together, and we're interdependent in many ways. So we are individually members of one another. So we are individuals. That's not blotted out. But as individuals, we are interconnected with one another in the body of Christ. This is echoed in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For as the body 
is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For And then the reason for that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is one of the central passages on the baptism by the Spirit. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who performs the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. That comes out of the fact that all of the gospel passages that uh, prophesy uh, the baptism by the Spirit say that the one, John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me, he will baptize you by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. So the one who does the baptism is the Messiah, Christ. And he does it by means of the Spirit. And whenever you see the Holy Spirit mentioned in relation to baptism in the New Testament, it's like we have here, for by one Spirit. The Spirit is the means. It's the same phrase in the Greek uh, in the Gospel passages as, as here. The trouble is in English, when we move from an active verb to a passive verb, uh, we use uh, the, the preposition by. So if you say John hit the ball, and then you tra- change that to a passive concept, it would be the ball was hit by John. So we look at that preposition by as indicating um, as in- indicating the agent of the action. Uh, but the problem is in Greek you have a different preposition hupa that designates the agent who performs the action in a passive verb construction. And you don't have hoopa here, you have by, which means it's designating again, just like in all the statements by John the Baptist, that it is Christ who performs the baptism, and he uses the Holy Spirit, so it's a delegated responsibility to the Holy Spirit. He uses the Holy Spirit to put us or to identify us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the result of that is we are entered into this new organism, the body of Christ, and we are uh, members of one another. So this is a critical concept. So what do we understand the Bible to teach about our ministry to one another? So the Greek word is alelon. Uh, this means one person functioning towards others in a group. Literally, it means of one another. And most of the New Testament contexts are addressed to individual congregations, but they have application to the universal body of Christ. So it isn't just that we are to perform these responsibilities to other members of the local assembly to which we belong, but that we are to exercise these functions in relationship to others who are also part of the uh, of the body of Christ. And it's based on the fact that there is this organic unity. Now, one of the problems that we have is that we have divisions within the body of Christ that are related to political distinctions, that are related to cultural distinctions, that are related to ethnic distinctions, and also to national distinctions. And it is sad that that many times 
one of those factors interferes with our ministry to one another. And so we use that as an excuse. Now, sometimes that's the result of the fact that someone who has uh, a certain dis- differences from us, that could be the result of, of uh, a number of doctrinal factors as well. But we should always treat them in grace and in kindness and in biblical encouragement. But there are times when you may be doing this as best you can and you're going to be canceled. You're going to be cut off. And all of a sudden that person that at one time you had a good relationship with, but as you try to address some of these issues from the Scripture just to have a discussion, and I've had this happen a number of times, they don't want to talk about it, and before long, you just never hear from them again. They don't reply to emails. They don't reply to text messages, and you're just cut off. But we, th- that, we can control how we interact. We can interact in care, concern, kindness, and on the basis of Scripture, and it puts them on the defensive, perhaps, and they're the ones who make the decision that, that they just don't want to have anything uh, to do with us. And that that's hard for us sometimes. Sometimes this impacts families. Sometimes it impacts uh, your career because of things that are uh, uh, of a real uh, radical nature going on in our culture right now. But we are to exercise this care, as we see in a minute, as part of our love for one another. The second point here is that love one another is the most common command in the New Testament. It is used 15 distinct times, just this phrase, love one another. There are some other synonymous phrases, which I which I point out uh, in this study, but it it is the dominant thing, and I believe this is the umbrella uh, umbrella command for all of the other one another commands. In other words, when we get into passages that talk about uh, edifying one another or praying for one another or caring for one another, all of these are just different aspects of loving one another from a biblical perspective. So we have the phrase love one another in John, specifically John 13 and John 15. We have it stated in many ways by the Apostle Paul throughout um, many of his epistles and also in Peter's epistles. So the, the four uh, primary writers of the New Testament epistles are John, Paul, and Peter, and they each uh, mention these things. So all of these different manifestations of what it means to love one another, uh, being humble toward one another, forgiving one another, kind to one another, putting up with each other in love, not judging or maligning one another or gossiping about one another, all of that are just different ways in which we express biblical love toward one another. So in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus gives the primary command. He says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this statement of his takes place in the upper room, the same night where they have observed the Passover meal, the Seder meal, and they have, he has already uh, sent Judas on his errand of betrayal so that there are only the 11 disciples left and they are all clearly believers. And so this command is given to them uh, to love one another. It is a more direct statement than uh, Leviticus 19.18 that uh, under the law they were to love their neighbor as themselves. Now they are to love one another in the body of Christ uh, as Christ loved us. And so the pattern there is Christ demonstrating the love of the Father for us by going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins. That is the pattern that we see, the example that is given to, to us on what it means to love one another. It is an impossible standard. You and I cannot do that apart from the work of God the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it is a different love than what we can produce on our own. We can imitate it to some degree, but the love that is spoken of in all of these passages is a love that is the fruit of the Spirit that only is developed as we grow and mature in our walk by means of the Spirit. In this same upper room discourse, because it begins when Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, by the end of John 13, somewhere between, somewhere in the process of his teaching on John 14, are probably right at the end of 13, they go out. And while they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he continues to teach them and instruct them on the different unique factors of the coming uh, spiritual life of the church age. And so there's a lot, certain amount of repetition and a certain amount of latter verses being built on previous verses. So he repeats this in a slightly different way in John 15. In John 15:12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, there's a certain aspect of Christians that think that uh, that it's legalism to emphasize that God tells us to do certain things and not do other things. That is a false view of legalism. But I've heard a lot of young believers who don't know much uh, make that kind of say, well, that's just legalistic saying that we have to love one another. Well, Jesus said it. He wasn't legalistic. He was totally uh, perfectly oriented to grace. And it's repeated again and again in the old, in the New Testament in church age letters. So there are responsibilities given to every believer, but it's not the basis for either God's uh, giving us salvation and it's not the basis for God blessing us because at the instant of salvation, he's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 1 4. Now, if you look at the context here in John 15, 
Jesus began to talk to them about the importance of their intimate relationship with him in the spiritual life of the coming church age. And he used the uh, illustration of the vine and the branches. And in that, he says to them, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, he gives the command, abide in me and I in you. Abiding in Christ is the same as walking by the Spirit. It is talking about that uh, relationship, that fellowship, that partnership in uh, our spiritual life that is integral to the Christian life. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Think in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, you can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. I can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. I can walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit will develop that uh, within my life. He says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So we have to be walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and as we do that, God the Holy Spirit works to produce fruit in our, in our, in our lives. And so he continues to take them through this, and it's in that context that when we get down to verse 10, he says, if you keep, uh, he said, I'll start with nine. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So abiding in fellowship is abiding in Christ's love, and that's the same as walking by the Spirit. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So obviously he's not being legalistic here. He's stating that we have to walk by the Spirit. We have to be obedient to him because if we're disobedient, we sin and we're no longer abiding or walking. We have to confess our sin to be restored to that fellowship. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain or abide, it's the same word, that my joy may abide in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So John fifteen twelve and verse 17 are integral to maintaining our walk by means of the Spirit. That means if we are violating this command, then that means we've sinned and we're no longer abiding or walking by the Spirit. And so then we need to confess sin and get back back in fellowship. Uh, various verses reiterate this. Paul in Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, if you take the time to look at the context, uh, just prior, uh, just after this, Paul says, by explaining it, he says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Where do those come from? That's the second half of the Ten Commandments. That's five commandments related to our love for one another. The first five commandments relate to what it means to love uh, God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he 
lists these commandments taken out of the Mosaic law, which is directed to Israel, was never directed towards Gentiles. He says, our Lord then says, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, he's not saying you have to love to be saved. He's not talking about that. He's talking about what he's using the Mosaic law as an illustration of what it means to love one another. Galatians 5.13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty, that is, a personal emphasis on what I have the right to do as an individual. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the sin nature. That's what the flesh refers to. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. See, if you're operating on the sin nature, the orientation of the sin nature is what? Self. Me, 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 me. What I want to do against what God wants me to do. But we are to serve one another. That is a manifestation of loving one another. Galatians, um, or 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. See, that word increase and the word abound tell us that this is something progressive. We grow. We love like a baby, then we love like an infant, then we love like a child, then we love like an adolescent, then we love like a mature adult. There is a progress, and it comes as a result of our growth in knowledge and walking by the Spirit, as we've studied in our passage in uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 9. So, First Thess 3.12, we're to love one, increase and abound in our love for one another. First Thess 4.9 says, but concerning brotherly love, you have so need, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. See, it has a supernatural source. We can't generate it. We can't pull ourselves up by some sort, by some sort of loving bootstraps. We have to walk by means of the Holy Spirit and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, studying the Bible, listening to good Bible teaching day in and day out, you're not going anywhere. God, you're not giving God the Holy Spirit any tools to use to mature you as a believer. Uh, be, growing as a disciple is a whole new venture in a person's life. That's why many disciples fell away from Jesus. And in John chapter 6, every all this huge crowd left him. Jesus turned to his disciples and says, why are you guys still here? Everybody else has left, Peter said. Only you have words of eternal life. Once you grasp that, it puts everything else that you're involved in in life in perspective. Because our focus as growing, maturing disciples is to uh, follow the Lord, study the Word, and let His Word transform our thinking. In Second Thess one three, we read, "We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because of, because your faith grows 
exceedingly. See, that's spiritual growth. How do you grow spiritually? You grow spiritually by taking in the Word, by walking by the Spirit. You don't grow spiritually by going to churches and singing choruses and uh, being involved in social change uh, ministries because that has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. You have to transform your thinking biblically, and that takes time and study and effort. So uh, we are, uh, he goes on to say here, your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards one another. So as your faith grows, as your understanding of what you believe, not just the ability to believe, and the willingness to trust God, that grows, but it grows in proportion to your understanding of God and his word, what you believe is growing as well. And the result of that is there is a growth in your love toward one another. In First Peter one twenty two, Peter says, Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, through the through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart keep pressing on in your spiritual growth first john 3:11 for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another First John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is stage one. That's justification. Loving one another summarizes the process of spiritual growth. If I were to take the time and go through First Corinthians chapter 13, talking about the characteristics of love, it is a description. It is not a definition. A lot of people don't understand that there's a difference between definition and description. A lot of people take description to be a definition, and other people try to, uh, you know, try to cram descriptions into definitions. They're two totally different things. First uh, Corinthians 13 describes the uh, describes love and the characteristics of love. And the last verse says, faith, hope, and love continue, but the greatest of these is love because faith ends once we're face-to-face with the Lord. Hope ends once we're face-to-face with the Lord uh, because hope is realized, because faith is evidence of things not seen. So once we see the Lord, once we're face-to-face with the Lord, hope and faith are no longer uh, functional. But what continues is love. This is related to the maturity that we take with us when the when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. You can't take your money with you. You can't take your possessions with you. You can't take your pets with you. I'm sorry to say that. I think we may have pets there. I don't know. Scripture doesn't address it. But the one thing we, we can take with us is the level of spiritual maturity that we've achieved in this life, which is related to our growth and in true biblical love. First John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. See, once again, this is a divine thing. It is a, a result of the ministry of God in our lives. We can't generate this on our own. 
of love is from God, and everyone who loves is literally, it's a perfect participle. Everyone who loves has already been born of God and knows God. In other words, those who aren't regenerate and haven't grown in their knowledge of God can't love. That's his focal point. So, 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So it boils down to that work. See, you have the word abiding in First John, John 4.12, which tells us always that the focal point is on, on fellowship. So that takes us through uh, the first two points, and we'll come back next Sunday, and we will look at the rest of it with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have such clear instruction in your word. Uh, the sad thing is for many believers, these are things that we sort of uh, skip over because we don't understand it. In a lot of cases, we really don't want to love that other person because of various disagreements. And we don't understand, and many Christians just don't have a clue what it means to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the light, to abide in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we might come to understand that, that, that as, as a result of this study, we might understand that we are to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Our part is to study your word, to uh, stay in fellowship, to abide in Christ, to internalize your word, having our thinking transformed by the truth of your word. And your responsibility is to mature us and strengthen us and edify us and to uh, continue to uh, increase our love for one another and our love for you. Father, we pray that anyone listening might not confuse what we've been teaching for a path to salvation. For salvation is uh, not of works. Salvation is by uh, grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is your gift that you gave your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a manifestation of your love for us in that while we were still sinners, you sent your son and he died on the cross for us so that by trusting in him and him alone, we have everlasting life. Father, we pray that anyone who is here or anyone who is listening online now or later, that you would just make that very clear to them of their need for salvation, their need to trust in Christ because he has solved the greatest problem that we'll ever face in life, which is our spiritual death and separation from you, and that by trusting in you and you alone, we have everlasting life. And now we have a responsibility to nourish that new life, to feed it, uh, to feed on your word so that we may grow by it. And, Father, we pray that we would be uh, willing to accept that challenge to make your word the priority in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.